Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the leaders uh, here at Grace Church, and I'm going to chat a little bit through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with you, and specifically what, what we mean as a church when we say we want to be saturated by the gospel. As with all these kind of things, it can sound like just a collection of words that we threw together because they kind of sounded okay, but what I really want to unpack is what do we mean by that uh, when we say that's the kind of church that we want to be. Um, I want you to imagine that uh, tomorrow you are in at work or... Um, I don't know, school or coffee shop, or wherever you meet people. So wherever it is that you're going to meet someone tomorrow. Uh, and they're, they're you know, making, making small talk as people do. And they say to you, what do you do over the weekend? Uh, and you, you say to them, oh, oh, well, I was actually at Grace Church. Maybe, maybe you normally come to Grace Church. So you're like, yep, I was at Grace Church. That's kind of what I do on Sunday. Maybe you're not normally there. And you're like, oh, I was actually at this church called Grace Church uh, uh, at, the, at the weekend. And they say to you, oh, oh tell, me, tell me what that was like. Like, I wonder what you'd say. Like, what would you say? Like, as, as a leader of Grace Church, I'd love to be a fly on the wall and hear those conversations. Like, what do you say about Grace Church? Like, what, what are we like? Like, maybe you talk a little bit about the things they do. Like, they do some singing um, they, that you talk about. They seem to like opening up the Bible and talking about that. Um, you know, maybe you chat a little bit about the stuff that we do. Maybe you talk about the kind of things. They'd be like, oh, there are just loads of kids there. Just like tons of kids everywhere all, all the time. Maybe you talk about that. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what you talk about. But what about if they, what about if they ask you a, a different question? Instead of asking you what, what's Grace Church like or what was it like where you were yesterday, what if they ask like, what's, what's Grace Church about? Like, what actually is Grace Church? What's the point of Grace Church? Like, what do they believe in? What are they passionate about? I wonder how you'd answer that question. You see, that's, that's really what we're wanting to unpack over these next seven weeks. Is what is it that we at Grace Church, what is it that we're passionate about? What, what is it that we're into? Maybe, maybe you're relatively new to Grace Church. Maybe you're just kind of looking in, trying to work out, like, is this a, is this a place I like? Is it a place I don't like? Is it, a place, is it a thing I want to be a part of? Is it something I just want to get, get away from as quick as I can? Like, like what, what is it? Maybe you're looking into it. Um, my hope is, as we chat through these, um, these seven weeks, and the seven values we have in church. My, my hope is that you will, at the end of this, understand a little bit about what, what makes Grace Church tick. Like, like, why it is that we do the things we do. Like, why are we here this afternoon? Why do people bother coming? Why am I up here talking? Why do we do the rest of the stuff we do uh, uh, through the week? But, but my hope is more than that. You see, my hope isn't just to, like, give you some information to help you understand Grace Church a bit. My, my hope is that if you are a part of Grace Church, if you're someone who would count yourself as, yeah, I'm a part of Grace Church, I, I like being a part of Grace Church, my hope is that as we go through these values, God would speak to us and, and help us to live out these values well. That he would be transforming us, changing us, challenging us about other ways that we could live this out better as a church. You see, our, our hope as we open up the Bible and we think about these values is that God will be equipping us to be the kind of church he wants us to be. That through this we would be a better church. And that, that's the goal. That's, what, that's why we do this. And it's worth saying that the question of what kind of church are we going to be, that's not a given. It's not a given, oh, well, of course we're going to be this sort of church. Because if you, if you look around the world, you will find churches that are about all kinds of things. 
you'll find churches that are into all kinds of things. You'll, you'll find churches that express themselves in, in, in many different ways. You'll find some churches that are, in essence, a social club. Like, is, that, is that what we want to be? Is that the kind of church we want to be? Do we want to be a social club? Do we want to be a place where people come together, they meet up, they build relationships, and then they go about their lives? Do we want to be basically a place where people with some sort of spiritual or religious inclination, oh, this is just a club for those guys. If you're into religion, you go to the church. If you're into football, you go to Hartlepool United. If you're into football, don't go to Hartlepool United. Um, but, you know, like, you know, is that what we want to be? Like, uh, do we want to be those, those people? Is, is that what we are? We're basically, this is the group where if people are into, like, spirituality, they, they, they go along to there. So we, we could be that. We, we could be, like, culture warriors. You can, you can see, you can go around church, you can find them. You know, churches that our, our identity is to push back against culture. Are people united around their common dislike of everything in their culture? Like, like you could be that church because they exist. They're, they're out there. Like, we, is that the kind of church we want to be? We could be a self-help group. Plenty of churches, that's kind of how they function. That's what they want to be. We just want to be a self-help group. A place that people can come together, share ideas, chat through problems, help themselves be the best version of themselves. We could be a, a self-righteous, religious little clique. You'll find plenty of churches like that out there. Like, we could be that. We could be like, this is the place we want to come cause, so that we can come together and just feel a bit better than everyone else because that helps us get through the week. Like, that just helps me kind of cope with the week if I can just get together with a group of people we can kind of feel good about ourselves, like encourage ourselves about how much better than everyone else we are and then go about our lives. We could be that. We could be a business. What we're about is about uh, growth, more money, more power, more influence. Like, we, we could be that. Like, there's plenty of things that we could be as a church. It's not a given that a church is going to be a certain thing and it's going to be about a certain thing. If you were to go around 20 churches, you'd find churches that are about all kinds of different things. And the reason we want to talk about this is because God really cares about what churches are like. I just want to put this out there. Like, God cares about what Grace Church looks like, about the kind of church we are, about what makes us tick. He really cares about that. And, and he cares about it for, for two reasons. One of the reasons he cares about it is because we're, we're told again and again that God loves the church. And when you love something, you care about what they're like. I, I love my wife, and because of that, I care about how she is, how she behaves, what she does. So, so God cares about God cares about the church because He loves the church, and He longs for the church to be uh, to be a certain way, to enjoy being the church He created them to be. But the other reason God really cares about what churches are like is because God has decided that the primary way he's going to reveal himself to the world is through local churches. That's how he's going to show people what he's like. He's going to show, God is going to show something of himself through what churches look like. It's amazing. Like, I can't really get my head around why you choose to do that. It seems such a risky thing to do. Like, churches are such a mess about so many different things. I don't like anybody else representing me, never mind the idea of like this imperfect mass of people going, we're going to show the world something of what God's like. Why would God choose to do that? But he has. He says it again and again that through the church, God is going to reveal what he's like. So God cares what the church is like because the church reflects on him. 
And, and because God cares so much, what you find as you open up the Bible is you find letter after letter written to churches which are dealing with this question of what kind of church are you going to be? What are you going to be about? One of those letters is, is the letter of 2 Corinthians, which Scott read the start of to us recently. What's going on here is uh, Paul, one of the early Christian writers, is writing to churches, here to the church in Corinth, and he's going to unpack a little bit kind of what, what they need to be about as a church. What, what's important? What kind of things they need to get rid of? What kind of stuff they need to invest in? And so, as you look through this section, as he starts off this letter, he starts off by unpacking something of the great story of who God is and what he's done. Because Paul understands that if you're going to be a certain kind of church, it's all going to flow out of who you think God is and what, what you understand of what he's done is. So, so today I'm going to just spend a little bit of time looking at these first, this first section of 2 Corinthians and just unpacking, okay, what does it mean? How does Paul think that being saturated by the gospel plays out in the life of, of a church? Now, I'm, I'm a child of, of the 80s, um, which means that I did most of my kind of formative like years were in the 90s. So in the 90s was when I was kind of teenager and kind of growing up and, and establishing a bit of, of, of who I am. And so much development happened during the 90s. Now in the 90s, there were, there were lots of amazing things in the 90s. You know, I grew up in the days of boy bands and girl power. I, I, grew, I grew up in the time where there was no such thing as a bad Star Wars film. How I miss those days. Um, like, like that, that was when I grew up. Like that, that was the time I grew up in. And, and during the 90s, one of the great films that came out was The Matrix. It came out right at the end of the 90s. And now, The Matrix is one of my uh, all-time favorite films. I, I, I absolutely love it. And I remember when I watched it for the first time, and there was just so much that I loved about it. Like, I just, I loved, I loved the, the music in it. I loved the fighting in it. I loved the kind of slightly sort of philosophical storyline that made you feel smart. Like, I loved, I loved, like, all that sort of stuff in it. And, and I remember just, just watching it, and still, still to this day, if I get myself a new projector or a new sound system in my house, then still what I do is I dig out the Matrix, and I turn it to the Morpheus is fighting Neo scene, um, for those of you who know it, and I turn it up to 11, and I just sit back and enjoy. Like, that, that's, like that, that's what I do to, to enjoy these things. So, so I watched this, and I remember, I remember kind of as I watched it, I remember just like thinking, Man, and that, that, those, those clothes they wear are so cool. I mean, you can see, I'm a man who cares a lot about clothing. Um, but I just remember thinking that. I remember the moment where my, my friend got a big black leather trench coat, and I was so jealous. I was like, that's the greatest thing ever. I've to this day never worn a black leather trench coat, uh, and do not regret that, that, that truth. But, but, but at the time, like, just watching it, it just kind of, it starts to influence the, the things you talk about, the things you think about, the way you want to look. Like, that's what happens when you watch something that you, that you love. That was one of the things that happened in the 90s. But actually, something that had a much bigger influence, and something that's had a lot more longevity, I believe has even enjoyed... Uh, something of a renaissance in, in the past decade, um, was the TV show Friends. So, so I also grew up during the era of, of Friends, when, when Friends came out. So I think the first episode of Friends came out when I was like 11 or something. So I was like perfect age to like tap into, tap into that world. Um, and so, so, so I remember watching it. Now Friends in lots of ways has a, a less complex plot than, than The Matrix. Um, and it, it, it leads to you feeling probably not quite as you know, superior as The Matrix might for, for enjoying it. 
it has quite a bit less leather um, than, than The Matrix, although there is a great episode with leather trousers that Sarah still laughs at just the thought of. Like, if she was in this room now, that would be, it would be over for her now. She wouldn't be able to actually focus for the rest of this talk. Um, so, 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 but the story, of, the story of Friends, actually the impact of Friends, I'd argue, is much more significant. Because Friends followed this, the, the lives and the lifestyle of, of, six, of six people, and their lives just looked so appealing in so many ways. Like, there's just so much that you looked and thought, man, I wish I had a life that was a bit like that. You probably didn't even think that way. But as you just watched it, then it was like these people who'd moved to a city, like everything's happening. They're in, they're in the place where, where life happens. You're living with your friends. You're going to coffee shops. And as we watch these kind of young, free, single people with no responsibilities and friends who'd always be there for them, you just ended up thinking, I, I want that life. I want that life with no responsibilities, where, where I've got friends around me and I spend my time drinking coffee and getting into hilarious situations. Like, that, that's, that's what I want my life to look like. And you can see it in so many ways. Coffee shops started to spring up. Like, there was just like, there was like this explosion in coffee shops after like the friends, after the friends phenomenon came out. Just because all of a sudden everybody's like, that looks like a good way to spend time. Let's spend my time doing that. Views of what friendship was changed. It's important. Views on the role of family, or more accurately, in friends, the lack of role of family, they began to be established. Views on what it meant to grow up started to shift. Now, why am I talking about The Matrix and Friends? Well, I'm talking about them because I want us to, to just understand what happens when we become saturated by something. What happens when something is around us and we expose ourselves to a lot of it and it starts to kind of seep in and permeate into the ways that we think and the things that we value. Because that's what we mean when we say we want to be saturated by the gospel. We mean we want to be so exposed to it that it starts to shift the way that we think and the things that we say and the ways that we relate to people and the things that we think are possible and the things that we think are impossible and the things that we value and the things that we love. That's what we mean when we say we want to be saturated by it. And it happens when you have a lot of exposure to anything. It doesn't just happen with the gospel. It happens with friends, whether you notice it or not. You see, when we say we want to be saturated by the gospel, we mean allowing the gospel to seep into all the places of our lives. As I watched The Matrix in a small way, it began to influence the things I talked about, the things I thought about, the, the things that I, what, how I wanted to look, things that I thought were good and things that were bad. As we watch Friends, it begins to shape the kind of people we want to be, the kind of lives we want to live, the kind of society we want to exist in. And sometimes we notice that happening. Sometimes we can kind of go, oh yeah, I can see how that's influenced that. But often we don't. Often we just don't notice it happening, it just happens. Often it's more passive than that. It happens, and we don't even notice. You see, everything that we expose ourselves to, everything that we watch or read or play or talk about or think about, they, those things shape us. They influence the people that we become and the things that we do. And so here, what we're saying is, as a church, what we want to expose ourselves to again and again is the gospel. That's what we're saying. We're saying the thing that we want to, to influence us, whether we notice it or whether we don't notice it, it, is the gospel. 
the thing that we want to seep into our lives so it flows out into the things that we think about and the things that we talk about and the things that we value and the things that we love is the gospel. The good news of who God is and what he's done through Jesus. That's what we want to shape us. We want the gospel to fill us so much that it overflows in our words and our actions, in our relationships. What, what is Grace Church about? Well, it's about being saturated by the gospel, which leads to an obvious question. The obvious question is, well, what, what's the gospel then? Uh, what is this gospel that we want to be saturated by? Now, there's, there's, there's many different ways of answering that question. I'm going to try and answer it in a, in a few different ways drawing on uh, some of the big ideas that I've pulled out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You see, the story of the gospel begins with a good world created by a good God, which we break. That's that's where this good news begins. A good God who makes a good world, which human beings break. Human beings, what we do is we decide we want to take God's world... We want to live in it, but we want to do it our own way. We're not interested in how he made it to function. Like, that's not what we care about. What we care about is we just want to do our own thing with it. Like, yep, the the world looks good. I know you said we want to do it this way, but we don't want to do that. And so we wanted to do it our own way. But more than that, we actually didn't want anything to do with God. We were like, actually, more than just, like, doing it our own way, we also want to just ignore you, pretend you don't exist. We want nothing to do with you, ideally. And so, so we go our own way. That's how the story begins. And as we go our own way, certain things begin to happen. So shame comes into the world. Mistrust comes into the world. And as those things come in, then the fruits of those things start coming in. Isolation comes in. Eventually, death comes in. Now, the gospel is the story of what God does in response to that. You see, how, how is God going to respond to that? Because he could respond in any number of ways. He could say, fair enough. You want to go your own ways? Have, have a way with you? Just go and enjoy yourself? After all, there's plenty more planets in the cosmos. Like, don't, don't necessarily need this one. Just you, you crack on with it. Go your own way. Do what you want. He could kind of wash his hands of it, say, I want nothing to do with it. He could say, right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pour down judgment on you. That's what I'm going to do. You don't want me? Fine, I'll get my own back. He could do those things. But that's, that's not the story of the gospel. Because at the very start, you see how God's going to respond. At that very first moment where humanity says, actually, we want to do it our own way, we want to go our own way, and they, they are there, frightened and ashamed, God's response is to come down next to them. And you get this, this picture of him, kind of, um, of him kind of sewing clothes for them to bring kind of that, that image of protection for them, that image of the, the kind of removal of their shame. His goal is to make them feel less ashamed, to make them feel less fearful. And, and, and at that moment, he also promises, he says, yes, there's brokenness here. The world's a broken place. If I need to convince any of you that the world is a broken place, then you, you just need to kind of live a little bit more in the world and like then come back to me. Because I've got nothing more to offer you to tell you the world's going place than the world that you all live in, that I live in. Like hopefully that's self-evident to us. But God says, actually, the world's not always going to be broken. He says, one day, I'm going to deal with all the brokenness that's come into this world now. 
He says, what you now see and experience, that won't always be your story. The brokenness is real. It's not going to go away like that. But the brokenness is not absolute. You need to hear that. Yes, the world is broken, but that brokenness is not absolute. There's still beauty and goodness and so much to admire in the world. The world is broken, but it's not absolutely broken. It's not like every bit of it is, is an absolute disaster. God says, no, it's broken, but it's not absolutely broken. And he also says, the bro- yes, there's brokenness in the world, but it's also not permanent. It's not absolute and it's not permanent. One day, the bro- what is broken will be made new. See, that's how God responds to the brokenness that comes into the world. Through us God's saying, we're going to go our own way. And actually, the story continues, basically following that pattern for a very, very long time. For thousands of years of human history, that's the story of human history. That mix of brokenness and beauty. Human beings going their own way. And with that, there being uh, war and uh, pain and suffering and abuse. But also alongside that, incredible things of beauty. Poetry, loving relationships, meaningful lives. That's the story of the world as it, as it kind of pans its way out. But throughout all of that, God continues to be ignored, continues, people continue to build their own path with limited success. And into that world, that world of brokenness and beauty, God himself comes. 2,000 years ago, the person of Jesus, God himself comes into that world. And, and what you see as God comes into the world there is he doesn't come as a, a warrior saying, right, now I'm going to sort this out. No, he comes with gentleness and humility. He doesn't come for revenge or judgment, but he comes to bring peace. He is loving to all. He is gentle and with the vulnerable. He is kind to the outsider. He comforts the grieving. He heals the sick. He brings good news of God's forgiveness to all people. For 33 years, he walks as what is, in essence, the ultimate demonstration of God's love for humanity. That's what he does. He spends 33 years as the embodiment of God's love. And as he departs, he promises that as I go, that's not God going. He says, no, God's going to stay. He's going to stay now through his spirit. And what that spirit is going to do is he's going to be the great comforter. He's now going to be the one who walks through the brokenness with you. He's now going to be the one who speaks of God's love for you. He's going to be the one who shows you gentleness. He's going to be with us as we navigate this deeply broken world. And one day, he says, one day, that brokenness will be over. We're going to go to him. And we're going to go to him battle-wearied from the lives that we've lived. Scarred, hurting, from living in so much brokenness. And as we go to him like that, he's going to come to us. And just as he sewed those clothes for those first people, he's now going to come to us and he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. He's going to say, yes, it hurt, but that's now over. You're safe now and will never be apart again. You see, this is, this is why 
when Paul starts in 2 Corinthians. He talks about God as the God of all comfort. Because that's actually the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel who it is that when we're ashamed, when we're suffering, and when we're isolated, and when we've made a mess of everything, God comes to us, not in judgment, not in harshness, but as the one of all comfort. He did it at the start. He did it through the person of Jesus. He does it through his spirit. And one day, that final day, he's going to come as the ultimate comforter who wipes away every tear from our eyes. What's the gospel? The gospel is the story of the God who comforts us. We go our own way. We reject him. But he doesn't give up on us. He comes to us and he doesn't come to us say, you should have known better, you should have been better. He comes to us with words of comfort. He comes to us to say, you are loved and you are forgiven and you are accepted. As we face shame and fear, he comforts us with a gospel that says we are loved and accepted and there's nothing in the world that will ever change that. As we face slavery and pain, as we're trapped in cycles of destructive behaviour, of pain and loneliness, of mental health challenges, of temptation and sin, he comforts us with the truth that we are forgiven, that he is with us. And then he gives us his spirit to transform our minds and desires and appetite for sin. As we face vulnerability and sickness and death, he comforts us with a promise that one day those things will be no more. And that in Jesus we have already seen that initial victory over these things. See, the gospel is the story of the God who comforts us. And actually, if you've been, if you've been listening to that story, it is the story of the God who, who comforts us, but it's also a, a story of suffering. That's what the gospel is. It's a story of suffering. You, could actually, you can actually read the Bible as in, in many ways just a detailed uh, explanation and examination of suffering. <laughs> Where does suffering come from? Why is it here? And what comes out of it? You see, from the moment people reject God and go his own way, God himself suffers. You see, when I say it's a study of suffering, it's not just a study of like, oh, the suffering that human beings with. No, God himself doesn't sit distant from that suffering and say, you guys suffer and I sit up here. No, God himself suffers. From the minute that we went our own way, God suffers the pain of being betrayed by those who were meant to care for the world he'd lovingly created for them. He suffers the pain of seeing that good world damaged and destroyed. He suffers the pain of seeing people he created to love and be loved, being consumed by hate. He suffers the pain of seeing his good world become progressively more and more ravaged by sickness and death and all kinds of evil. He suffers the pain of being pushed out and ignored in the world that he himself had made. And then when he comes down to the world in the person, he lives as one of us and he suffers again. He suffers the pain of living in the same broken world that you and I do. And because he lives in that same world, he suffers brokenness and sickness and, and all kinds of things. But much more than just the normal brokenness that we all suffer, he suffers from kind of unique kinds of suffering as well. He suffers ridicule. He suffers betrayal by one of his closest friends. He suffers a moment where almost everybody he knows and cares about abandon him. He suffers torture. He suffers death. 
You see, as he demonstrates God's love, what does he experience? He experiences human hatred. As he demonstrates God's victory over death, what does he first have to experience? Death's victory over people. As he brings forgiveness for all the experiences, uh, uh, for all that he experiences, what, what he gets from that, he brings forgiveness, but he experiences unjust punishment for crimes that he was entirely innocent of. As he brings acceptance for all, he experiences rejection from all. As he comes in gentleness, he experiences brutality. See, the gospel is a story of suffering. But it's a story of a God who suffers. You see, yes, the gospel is the story of a God who comforts, but it's also a God, the story of a God who suffers. You see, the gospel is the answer to so much of the suffering that goes on in the world. But for, for Jesus and for, for all of us, it's also a cause of much of it. But the gospel is, it is a story of comfort, and it's a story of suffering, but it's also a story of hope. It's a story of a transformed life where in the midst of suffering we live in the knowledge that one day that suffering will end. In the midst of suffering we hope for good to come out of that suffering. In the midst of brokenness we hope for deliverance. In the midst of death we hope for resurrection. You see, the gospel is the story that brings hope into the darkness. It's worth just saying, like, when we say hope, we don't, we don't mean their wishful thinking. That's not what Paul has in mind here. He's not saying, well, what it does is it gives you, like, some kind of way off dream that you can just have there, like winning the lottery, you know, like, it's that thing that's never going to happen, but you can have it there just to kind of keep you going through the days. Now, when Paul talks about hope, he talks about something very different. I've talked about this, this image before. One of the images the Bible uses for the kind of hope we have is they talk about the hope that a watchman would have for the morning. I, just, I love that image so much. I don't know if you've ever had it where you've been like awake in the middle of the night and you're, maybe you're like anxious about something, worried about something. Maybe you're feeling guilty about something and your mind is going like a million percent. Maybe you're just awake with a screaming baby. Um, like these, these are all options. But like you awake in the middle of the night and the middle of the night feels like a dark place sometimes. Like at least it does for me. My own mind goes like all kinds of places in the middle of the night and I struggle to get on top of it. And I'm there in the middle of the night and it feels dark. And I'm longing for morning to come. And it feels like it's never going to come. It's like, how long is this night? Like, like I thought nights had like a normal amount of time. But they went, no, this night seems to go on forever. And you're stuck there in the middle and it's dark. And it feels like it's never going to end. But do you know what? It always does. It always does. You hope for the morning. And you might feel like the morning's never going to come. Like that watchman in the middle of his shift. Like, feeling like I just long for morning. Feeling like this night's surely been longer than any other night in the history of all nights. And so you hope for the morning. But it always comes. It's not like, oh, I hope, and I hope it's going to happen. You know, oh, I hope there's resurrection. I hope there's a future for me. I hope there's a world that's up for me. It's not that kind of hope. It's not wishful thinking. It's that watchman waiting for the morning, hoping for the morning that is definitely going to come. Always going to come. You might feel like it's a long way off. You might feel like it's so dark that no morning could ever penetrate this darkness, but the sun still rises and the morning still comes. You see, this is the gospel, the story of comfort, of suffering and of hope. 
And that, what, what I want us to see, and I spent a long time kind of trying to piece together the, the, the gospel in a variety of different ways, but what, what I want us to see is that as we become saturated by that story, then that starts to seep out in the things that we talk about and the things that we do and the way we approach the world. During, um, during the pandemic, I, I spent longer than is like healthy in my, in my tiny little white study at the top of my house, just sat on this chair, like doing a collection of different bits of work. And during that time, I, I had some... I had some times I just struggled. Like I, had, I had plenty of times where I didn't, and where I was thankful for God's goodness, and I was thankful for the people around me. But I had some low points in that. As somebody who, who loves having people around me, there was just a degree to which I just missed the kind of buzz and stimulus of just people around. Didn't even matter who they were, just like some people around me. And then during that time, work got really busy. And as work got busy and I got tired, then, then I found myself kind of locked in this kind of room, tired, feeling alone, lacking kind of external stimulus. And because of that, there were times where I just struggled to focus, like struggled to concentrate on like just simple things. Work just became like, I just can't get my mind to, to kind of process the stuff that I'm meant to be doing at this moment. My ability to concentrate seemed worse than ever. And through that, my motivation took a bit of a hit. I found myself not only struggling to focus, but struggling to be motivated to even want to. There were times in, in, that, in that period where Sarah and I, my, my wife, um, where we were struggling to communicate, struggling to talk well, struggling to feel close to each other. And you're there in this room, in this tiny little clinically white office, like trying to focus on stuff that you can't get your head around with no one else around you, struggling to, to talk well to your, your wife. During, during those times, these, these words from 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 and 4, just became like, incredibly precious to me. Because again and again I found myself praying these words, the Father of compassion and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Man, I found myself praying those words so often during that time. Praying that I would know the reality of the God of all comfort comforting me. I remember just times I was just praying out like, God, you're the God of all comfort. I just I, I long for you to comfort me now. Help me to experience the comfort you have for me. There were times where I found myself needing to remind myself and be reminded that that was who God was. That I was not alone, even when I was isolating. That I was not a failure. Even when I was struggling to do those things that I consider myself good at. And again and again I prayed that God would comfort me and that I would know that comfort during that time. But then... As God kind of worked in me and as I, I went through that and as I experienced some of his comfort, then I prayed that next bit. The God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You want to know what saturated by the gospel looks like? That's what it looks like. 
we experience the gospel so that as that fills us up, that flows out to other people. That's exactly what we mean by saturated by the gospel. As we experience God's comfort, what then flows out of us is comfort to other people. We're so filled with the good news of a God of comfort. We're so comforted by his gospel that tells us that we're not alone when we're lonely, that we are loved when we're insecure, that we're forgiven when we're guilt-ridden, that we're a child of God when we feel rubbish, that this comfort overflows in us then looking to comfort others. We just can't help it. It's filled every part of us. It's saturated everything in us. So now it inevitably seeps out. It's like my tent. As the rain falls down and gradually the canvas just gets covered with water, there is a point where inevitably the water starts coming through the canvas. Because our tent isn't actually waterproof, it's just absorbent. So it's how much can it absorb before it starts seeping through. That's exactly the image. There comes a point where we have absorbed so much of the gospel that it just starts dripping out. just has to. Because we can't hold any more. That's what we mean when we say we long to be a church which is saturated by the gospel. We mean that we are people, we long to be people who know the gospel so well that we're comforted in our troubles so that the comfort that we've received overflows in comfort that we know the gospel so well that we suffer for it, that we feel the pain of the brokenness that God feels so much more, that we experience the opposition and mistrust of the gospel, just like Jesus did. There's a lot of talk around at the moment. I've done a lot of thinking about resilience and what resilience looks like. The gospel is a key part of resilience. As we see God himself suffer, we begin to see suffering differently. We're no longer defeated by it. We no longer expect a life without suffering, but instead we become equipped to cope with suffering, at least in part, because we know the gospel of hope. We know that suffering will pass. We know that the gospel has already freed us from so much suffering, from guilt, from alienation from God, from being alone and unloved. And that one day we will be free from all our suffering. Being saturated by the gospel means that we know it so well, we experience it so deeply, that it ever increasingly shapes our attitudes and actions. I, I'm going I'm to wrap it up there. We've talked enough about this. But, but let, let me encourage you. This is therefore what we need to do. This is what, as a church, if we want to live out this value, this is what it looks like. It looks like saturating ourselves in the gospel. It looks like reading about the good news of what God's done. It looks like meditating on it, spending time just turning it round in your mind so it goes deep. It means spending time studying it, learning to appreciate elements of it that you'd maybe never even realised before. It means talking about it. As we talk about it, we process it, it goes deep. It means singing about it. It means living it out and finding the truth of it as we live our lives in the light of it. We're going we're gonna to finish by singing. We're going to sing a, a couple of songs. That, that, and my prayer as we sing these is that God will use them to just help us immerse our hearts in the gospel. That as we sing them, we'll be reminded of truths of who God is and of the good news of what he's done. And that as we find ourselves more and more immersed in the gospel, inevitably, 
it, it flows out in the lives we lead. Let's um, stand, let's sing together, and then we'll, we'll call it a day for us.